Welcome, everybody, to episode 30 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Good readings and salutations. Today, we have a guest from Canada. She is a uh, political science PhD student. Her name is Sonia Orlu. Sonia, go ahead and say hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you. We, we super appreciate you coming on. Um, like I'd mentioned when I reached out to you, uh, I had um, I kind of I actually found you on Instagram. I, I blame well, Facebook owns Instagram, so I blame Facebook algorithms for this. They just sort of you had said something, and I thought it was interesting, and um, decided to reach out and see if you wanted to do this. Uh, and then you were recently had an issue come up with a a paper you wrote, which I reached out before you wrote the paper. So I want to, I want to make sure, make it clear that, uh, um, I was interested before that came out, though it is a very interesting paper. And I do want to talk to you. We do want to talk to you about it. Um, I'm curious if you would like to start and kind of give us a breakdown, give the listeners a breakdown of, uh, kind of where you're from, what brings you to Canada, why you're studying in Canada, um, and sort of what your kind of, What's your story? What's your what's your beginnings? I think it's pretty straightforward. So I'm Nigerian. Um, I'm not yet Canadian. Hopefully soon. Um, but I I came to Canada just before I turned eighteen, um, and that was to study here, um, undergrad. And I I had never been outside Nigeria before then, um, and so coming to the West was quite a bit of an experience for me, um, but in terms of um, the weather, in terms of the people, I'd never really seen white people, <laughs> really, <laughs> before in person. I mean, other than movies and like TV shows, um, but actually being up and close to white people, like that was an experience in and of itself. Um, and uh, also, Canada is very multicultural, right? You have yeah. people from different parts of the world here. And so having that experience as well was what's quite uh, illuminating for me. So, yeah, I started my undergrad and um, in political science at uh, Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I had a very, very interesting interesting four years um, as an undergrad student, uh, because at the time I started, at the time I came to Canada, I would be considered, or I would have been considered like a social conservative of some sorts, like, because Nigeria is pretty conservative. Um, and uh, I went through perhaps my first two and a half, three years, um, and met really interesting professors that sort of shaped the way I thought about the world. And I was introduced to this idea of, of um, inequality, of systemic inequality, especially systemic racism, systemic sexism. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the usual buzzwords that you would hear whenever, you, whenever you're talking to someone on the left, right? And, and sure. Canada is mostly left, like it's, it's leans to the left of the United States. Um, so here we have a lot more um, people who you would consider progressives. Uh, and some of my professors were, were that way. So I, I, I got to learn a lot of how the world works structurally and 
needless to say, I was pissed a lot <laughs> um, because I, I just, I, I couldn't understand why there was just so much problems, like so much, so much inequality, so much asymmetry in power relations. Um, but in terms of politics and international relations, which was my my specific uh, stream, um, and in terms of gender relations, race relations, and so on. So um, I, I think I, I got a minor in uh, development and sustainability, and then I, I also did like an, a certificate in African studies. So I was pretty, by the time I got done with undergrad, I was pretty much on the left. I, I, I would probably have been considered like a social justice warrior. So I moved from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum uh, within four years. Okay. Uh, and uh, then I started my MA program immediately. Like I, I didn't, I didn't have a buffer period. Like I finished my program in like May and I'm um, sorry, my undergrad in May, I started master's in September. So I didn't get, I didn't get the, the sort of buffer period that most people tend to get. Uh, I didn't actually even get to enjoy my convocation because I was going to school. Um, so going through my MA program, I think that's when things sort of, I guess the, the, the glass that are shattering for me a little bit. And I'm not sure why, because I still had the same professors. I, I still did my MA in the same school. All my degrees are in the same school, essentially. I haven't moved away from, from Vancouver. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe I, I, I became more in tune with, with, what was going on in the world and like being more active, well, passively active on social media, consuming more material, uh, reading further uh, and coming across, I guess coming across more diverse thinkers than I was exposed to as an undergrad. Um, and uh, that's when I, 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 I started, I guess, questioning some things. Um, not so much at that point in time, because I remember the Michael Brown shooting happened in 2015, I believe so. And I was I was really, really pro-Black Lives Matter at that time. Um, but when I was, by the time I got done with my MA, um, I, I really didn't know what to do <laughs> after then. Um, and uh, I think I, I had this period where I was just coasting through life and, and, and I guess thinking a lot about my identity and where I actually belonged in the world um and that sort of i guess i grew up <laughs> in a way uh, you know how they say that uh you you become a conservative by the time you earn your first paycheck or something of that sort right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um so after my i got a job um and and i I guess I, I transitioned into the real world as I was no longer a student. And, and that sort of changed my perspective on, the, on a whole lot of things. Um, and then I came back to university two years after, this was in 2018. I, I, I think I was, I was pretty much on the fence. Then I would probably have considered myself more of a um, lib left, so like center left. Um, and uh, I still had, I still b believed in the whole like structural inequality, asymmetry and power relations and all of that. That was what my, my application to programs were, um, that's what, what, what my proposals were on. Um, I, I wanted to study, um, or my area of, of interest uh, is um, international relations, specifically the sovereignty principle, how that has evolved and how, um, the continent of Africa has sort of been shaped and shaped this this um, evolving principle, and so 
I also wanted to look at that from a feminist perspective. So I came into my PhD program um, with, with a background in, in, in feminist international relations um, and wanting to make that the central focus of my research. So, so needless to say, um, when, when, when again, and the, the, the cracks began to expand, it did cause a lot of identity crisis for me because I'm, I, I consider myself a Pan-Africanist. I was staunchly, staunchly uh, pro-Black. Pro I was, I consider myself a feminist. Uh, pretty much, again, someone, someone who embraces those progressive, quote-unquote, progressive values. Um, but as, 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 that identity crisis began to happen. I, I sort of stumbled upon um, scholars like uh, Thomas Sowell. I began to read Thomas Sowell uh, and uh, Ayn Rand um, and some of those people that I, I'd, I'd heard about uh, but never really encountered uh, per se. Uh, and then 2020 hit. And like that's when, I guess... The whole thing just exploded for me. Um, I I spent most of the summer binge watching Milton Friedman's um, lectures, um, <laughs> reading reading some of his pieces. Uh, again, going back to Iran, reading Thomas Sowell, reading. I, I came across uh, other heterodox thinkers like Coleman Hughes, John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, with a whole conversation that was happening around race. I could not identify with that with the narrative that I was used to before and and I, I began to shift away from that uh, I guess 2020 is when I finally thought of myself as more of a classical liberal uh, embracing more of like libertarian principles uh, because I the idea the way that the race conversation sort of formed in 2020 was one uh, that that painted black people as I guess this victim or uh, victims of the system that we couldn't do anything about. We weren't, uh, there was no sense of responsibility on our part uh, and that we are all bound by this, this narrative of oppression. And I couldn't identify with that. Um, I saw myself, I still, I, I, I see myself as an individual, um, yes, being shaped and constrained in, in many ways by structures, but still having a significant amount of agency. Uh, and so I began to find myself being drawn more to, to ideologies or philosophies that emphasize that individualism. And that's why classical liberalism and libertarianism sort of appeal to me more. Um, so I still care about inequality, obviously. I still, I still want to empower the individual. I still want the individual to be able to stand up for themselves. I still care about gender Quality, even though I wouldn't necessarily consider myself feminist right now in terms of especially Western politics. Now, when I consider politics or, or social relations back in Africa, I would maybe still consider myself a feminist in that context because I think that that, that women in the third world have a whole different set of experiences and are not as, as or have, do not have as much resources as women in the West have. I think right now we're scraping the barrel here in the West, whereas they're still very, <laughs> very, sorry, scraping the bottom of the barrel. And, 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 and in places like Africa and the Middle East, they're still really, really important issues that women still have to deal with. And so I would probably consider myself feminist in that context, but 
here in, in North America, in the West, I wouldn't necessarily, I put them as a more of like an egalitarian or equalitarian, right? Like men and women should be equal, we should have equal uh, opportunities. Um, maybe not necessarily equal outcomes. I don't do equal outcomes whatsoever in any, in any shape or form, not race, not gender, not sex, not anything of that sort. Um, but having equal opportunities is something that I'm still going to forever uh, be in favor, favor of. But, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of where I'm right now, uh, and uh, I'm still looking forward to evolving in terms of how I think about things. I don't want to get stuck in in one mindset forever, um, and so I that's that's the way I look at life, and and I guess it has served me well up until now. Sure, I um I have a quick question, or maybe it's not quick, but you had mentioned that uh, when you came to undergraduate in Canada that um, all of the inequalities that you learned about in undergraduate made you very angry, um, which is understandable. What I'm curious about, though, is um, you had also kind of mentioned that some a lot of the problems, let's say, within uh, for, for women, let's say, in America versus the third world are very, very different. So I'm curious what kind of inequalities you were learning about that made you so angry versus what you'd experienced back in Nigeria? Like, what was that, what was that difference like? And what were those things where you're like, this is really bad. I wasn't really aware of this. Um, so for most of my, my studies, the way that I structured my, my, um, my studies in undergrad, I, 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 I was more concerned with, with politics in the global south. So most of what I learned was about politics in the global south. I didn't necessarily concern myself with American politics or Canadian politics or anything of that sure. sort. Um, so, so learning about how, um, like, where Africa placed Africa. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to refer a lot to Africa because that's what I'm used to. Um, that's fine. So learning about where where Africa was placed in global political economy, how we got there, um, and how we still exist there was kind of, I guess, the first thing that, that really mm -hmm. opened my eyes. So learning more deeply about colonization or the slave trade and then colonization. And then afterwards, how um, institutions like the World Bank and the IMF used structural adjustment policies to sort of gets their way uh, in, in some countries in Africa. So that position, first of all, as a, uh, the, the position that the continent was in, first of all, for me was, was very, it was very jarring because I never understood that, that history, that background. I wasn't, it wasn't something that I was particularly taught uh, growing up in high school. Because okay. um, I mean, our education system is something else <laughs> to, to talk about. Um, so th there were a lot of things that I was learning for the first time in depth um, here in Canada. So um, so then learning about the inequalities that existed right in, in, in places other than Nigeria. So how women were uh, had limited access to education, how women had limited access to reproductive rights, how women had limited access. Like there, there are some countries that women aren't necessarily even full legal persons. Like they're still property of their male relatives or or whoever else that's that's masculine within within their their um, environment. So just learning about the, 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 
the place, the, the lack of agency that women had, um, maternal mortality rates, um, rates of sexual violence, especially in the context of war and civil conflict, that was something that to me was very, very, very jarring, very, very upsetting. Um, and not so much even, it was, it was doubly, doubly upsetting because to a very large extent, we were the cause of, of our problem. We are the cause of our problem. Now, back then I would have said, oh, we need to still talk about, we need to paint things or bring things back to colonization and, and how um, sort of the white man left Africa and the, 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 the infrastructural societal decay that, that, that happened just after they left because they didn't necessarily build some of these countries up to be sustainable. I would have also blamed the white man for some of those problems. Um, but just, just seeing how the, the plight of people, the, the malnutrition, the poverty, the rates of poverty, like there are people that are so poor that the average, like sometimes, I, like nowadays, when 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 I talk to some people who who complain about oppression in the United States, for example, um, and I think about just how how much poverty exists in in some African countries, I'm like, what are, what exactly are you complaining about? There are people who would never, <laughs> never being the same, like the average African-American, for example, will never experience some things that, that a lot of like millions of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people experience in Africa. Um, so that understanding of, of just how backwards, how poor, how unsafe the continent was, because in many ways I was insulated growing up in this very small part of Nigeria. I didn't necessarily know a lot about what was going on in, the, in other parts of, of the country and other parts of, of, the, of the continent. And so learning about that, yeah. learning about our history, learning about the civil conflicts that, that, that have, have went on and continue to go on was something that was really upsetting to me. Like it was something that, that I just I just could not understand what was happening. But then back then I would have pointed pointed the, the finger back to the white man. Like so the white sure. man divided Nigeria arbitrarily, put people that weren't that had no business being together with each with, uh, each other in the same geographical location and called them a country and left. Right. And and that has had consequences to date. Now I, yes, I would say that the British, the British royal family, the, the the British institution of colonization itself, had a key role to play in the 1967 to 1970 Nigerian civil war. That is that is indisputable because of it, that was a direct result of that of this amalgamation of 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 unaffiliated peoples. But our choices to date, to, to exploit, exploit such divisions, that is our choice. That has been our choice as a people. That has been the fault of our politicians. That has been the fault of people who continue to spoke, uh, stop division within the country. So I would I would be remiss right now to blame the white man for anything that's going on in Africa today. But again, back when I was an undergrad, that would have been, like I would have applied that historical lens to it and, and obviously come to that conclusion. Sure. And so if I understand correctly, what you're getting at is that the British in particular 
have some blame, obviously, for what they've done. And as with the French, I would say, too, because they've colonized the crap out of many uh, countries as well over the last uh, couple hundred years. But that doesn't negate the fact that the people on the ground in the countries still have some responsibility for their choices. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, as I understand it, I didn't do a huge amount of uh, uh, reading into Nigeria before our talk. Um, so if, if my history is a little bit off, forgive me. But if I understand correctly, has there not been multiple over the last like 100 years or so um, kleptocracies that have ruled Nigeria? Is that not right? It's unqualified individuals who take means by power, usually with military force, who essentially rob the Nigerian people of the money that they pay towards the government. Exactly. Um, so we, up until 1999, we had a whole range of, of uh, military dictatorships that essentially yeah. um, cleaned the country, but the, the clean, I mean, in terms of resources. Um, but even since returning to quote unquote democratic rule, <laughs> we've, re we've also had really shitty politicians as well. Um, and not just the head of, heads of states uh, or, that we've had, but at every level of government in that country, there is massive, massive uh, corruption. Yes. Uh, it's, 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 the, it's the state of being in Nigeria. For you to be able to get ahead, you need to participate in corruption. There's, there's no way out. Like, there, there's no such thing as merit. There's no such thing as doing it on your own without any imputes or without any, without soiling your hands. I, I, I don't care if you're the most, um, um, I guess, ethical person in order to live a fulfilled life in Nigeria. You do need to pay your dues. Now, that could mean giving a police officer a bribe. That could mean uh, uh, giving the bribe to a bank manager to cut in line or whatever it is. But you will participate in corruption at one stage or the other in your life. Um, and, and so that's, that typifies the, the nature of, of politics and society in, in the country. So, so, yeah, so at this point, we are our own worst enemy. Something that we see a lot in Mexico and the rest of South America as well. Um, this rampant corruption. Uh, what role do you think primary education plays in in this? Um, you mentioned that the education system in Nigeria was a it was a, another subject, and then you chuckled. So I assume it's. My assumption is it's bad, but um, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it, it, I'm curious your thoughts on education. Mm -hmm. I, and that's something that's, that's very near and dear to me because I'm in education and that's something I also wanted to develop, especially back home. Um, it's, so education is one of those things where your money, your money is going to buy you the best. Um, so there, there, there are obviously private-owned um, education institutions, and then there are public-owned education institutions. I went, well, most some of sometimes I went to a private school, and other times I went to a public school. Um, but generally speaking, the the level of education, unless you are able to pay for schooling that or, or institutions that are affiliated with maybe British or American um, uh, educational consultants. That's the only time I would 
think that you would get anything similar to the education that you would get here. But if you're just relying on the typical private or public institution, you aren't necessarily going to learn anything extraordinary. And there are a lot of really brilliant people in that country. We just don't get the opportunities that we need to get. Um, science education is, is, is pretty much non-existent. There are still schools that teach uh, uh, creationism as science. Um, and there are, the arts are again non-existent in, 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 in educational institutions. Teachers are not paid at all or paid very poorly um, from, from the, the nursery schools up to tertiary institutions and universities. Everything, the educational infrastructure, educational institutions are in a state of decay. You can imagine where someone um, finishes high school, gets into university for a four-year program, and is still there six, seven years. Why? Because um, the professors are going on strike every every other month. Um, Interesting. Yeah, not because not because they're failing courses, but because. The government doesn't want to pay teachers or yeah. uh, teachers feel like they they have some need to go on strike. Uh, and that sort of pushed a lot of people uh, towards private-owned um, uh, tertiary institutions, which became like a money, money grab scheme. Um, and uh, so you have people paying, paying hundreds of thousands of naira, uh, which is the Nigerian currency, which for an average Nigerian is very expensive uh, to, to send their children to these private universities. Um, and that's a whole story of its own because, well, as at the time I was in Nigeria, most, most of the private universities were owned by churches, huge, um, huge mega, mega churches in Nigeria. Uh, so they, they, they built their own universities and, and they were the best at that time. I, I, now I'm sure there are, there are more secular ones, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really um, clear on that. But when I was growing up, uh, when I was in Nigeria, it, it was mostly church-owned. But even these church-owned universities were very expensive. Um, I actually started um, university in Nigeria before I came here, and I went to one of one of those those universities, and yeah, it was really expensive. Like it, it did. Take my uh, take my parents quite a lot to uh, take out a lot of them to pay for my school fees, mm -hmm. but that was a price a lot of people had to pay if you wanted your child to graduate in four years. Otherwise, sure. then to your children to a, to a public university, I guarantee you they would not graduate in four years because there's always something that's going to happen. Um, whether again the teachers go on strike or just something is going to happen, and then even if you you actually look at the curriculum, look at the 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 level of expertise of some of the the professors, it's it's not up to snuff at all. Like like people, I have a I have a cousin right now who is probably in her sixth or seventh year of a five year program. Um, and she's every semester she has to she has to take um, nine courses per semester. Um, nine, wow! Nine. Exactly, I was shocked when I heard it. Um, right now she's writing high exams and she has to write exams for nine courses. Um, and um, she she I asked her what exactly it is that she's learning and how exactly she is supposed to digest all of this information when yeah. she has <laughs> when she has this this course load. But I think it's it's all it's all about the professor 
again, maybe reading verbatim off of textbooks and allowing, uh, 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 anticipating that students would somehow grasp concepts and then come exam and they set questions whether or not you read it, that's like it's it's there's no applied knowledge. There's no there's yeah. no sense of there's no sense of um, uh, sort of rigorous learning that encourages interactions between professor and student, between the material and student. Um, it's just sort of a rote memorization. Um, and professors are pretty much untouchable. Like once you become tenured, like you are, you are even even those that are not even tenured, like what, being a lecturer in Nigeria is like one of the easiest things to do and one of the easiest money-making schemes as well, um, because they get to they get to print their own their own quote unquote uh, what what they call it again. It's kind of like their own textbook, but sometimes it's just like a a like literal photocopy of an actual textbook that they then put their name on and then sell it to students. Exactly, and then sell it to students, and you cannot pass that course if you don't buy it. Okay. Wow. You have exactly, and you have in a class, you have over maybe like depending on university, but generally speaking, you have maybe like three hundred students in a class, Hmm. right? And every student has to purchase that book in order to pass that course, right? Yeah, Yeah. So. It's, it's not even, there's, there's no like weekly scheme and like, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's sad. Essentially, it's sad. So when you have no interaction with the material and when everything is just about rote memorization, um, you go to it, you have maybe one exam in the entire semester, the final exam. And that's where you get to like dump all of this information where you studied and where you did not study. The, the, the lecturer doesn't care. He just sets his questions and however it is that you you want to you want to address your, your reading or however it is you want to answer the, the question, that's up to you. Sometimes, even if you do well, it doesn't matter. If you want an A in the course, you have to go and settle your professor. Right? That, is, that is how it happens in, in most universities. And then we also have the issue and this came to came to a head last year, I believe. The issue of sex for grades um, that has been sort of like an endemic practice in in a lot of Nigerian universities, where for a girl or for a woman to be able to pass her course, she has to again either have sex with a professor or perform some sort of sexual exchange uh, with a professor. So. That's kind of the state of education there. And and remember when I said I, I didn't necessarily learn a lot about history in Nigeria or African yeah. history. Similar things, right? It's 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 and this is this is in high school. Um, we don't have that that like the professors are or the teachers are necessarily First of all, they're not necessarily experts. Maybe in university, yes, but like in high schools, you just have a teacher that's teaching a subject. They're not necessarily experts or even interested in what they're teaching. <laughs> um, and they're just doing that's it. the same here. <laughs> we get some of that, sure. Yeah, we got we got some of that. <laughs> but at least, like you, you, you get to understand the material. In my experience, yeah. for some of the for some of the teachers that I had, they have a scheme of work. Again, they just copy the textbook into that scheme of work and then come to class and read off that, that scheme of work for you or write it on the board and we all copy and that's our learning, right? And then when it's time for exams, you read that scheme of work and you go and write your exams. So the teacher is just a conduit for between the textbook and you. 
that's essentially what they are. Then they, they don't necessarily explain stuff to the extent that it becomes something that you're 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 really interested in. I mean, there there are exceptions. I had I, I had some teachers that that really inspired me, um, but for the most part, it's not very it's not a very rewarding um, um, uh, profession. And so you don't get a lot of good people there. Again, yeah. especially if, if it's government owned. Those teachers are most likely overworked and underpaid, uh, and uh, sometimes they show up to school. Sometimes they don't show. <laughs> like it, it's it's all it's all chaos. Like trust me, it's all chaos. There, the education system is something that needs a complete overhaul, and because of that, we don't get to be able to perform at the same level as our counterparts outside the country, even compared to other other African uh, African states. So most of us, when we get here, especially to study in university, there's a lot that we still have to learn. Sure. There's a lot that we have to catch up on. Um, and, and so for some of us, maybe our first or second semester, we, we kind of fall a, a bit back because we're, we, we don't write papers, for example, in Nigerian universities, sorry, Nigerian high schools. Like we don't write, essays um, in the way that you're expected to write an essay here. So you have to learn how to write an essay, for example, how to structure uh, sentences, how to how to formulate a thesis statement, things like that, how to do proper research, right? yeah. how to not plagiarize. Those are things that we have to learn from scratch here and, and, and sort of build ourselves up as, as, as really, really uh, excellent um, students. So those of us who end up making it, trust us, we are, we are, we are, we are good. If we, <laughs> if we, it, we are good. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how it is in a, in a nutshell. It's a, it's, it's a really sad situation, like I've said multiple times um, and nothing right now seems to be changing because there's, there's really no zeal or fervor to change situation um and so we're just there what are the yeah go ahead Dan. can you speak to what i'm assuming would have been a fairly large culture shock in that uh, if i understand correctly uh in africa specifically nigeria there definitely was legitimate systemic oppression uh, then when the white men pulled out, so to speak, that left it vulnerable to intense corruption, which would be the current state, to then come to the West and see what the students are complaining about here in terms of education and society and systemic racism. Uh, was that a shocking thing? Something along the lines of what are you people complaining about? You have no idea what actual oppression and corruption is like is, is is that a fair statement um i think maybe someone who went to the uk or or the us will have a much different experience than i did here um because here in canada especially in vancouver where i live we don't have a lot of white people <laughs> um, um and 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 some aspects of Vancouver obviously are majority white, but like my yeah. university, for example, um, there are a lot of international students. So mm -hmm. the 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 environment that I found myself wasn't that wasn't too foreign. Um, in that I knew I was in Canada, I knew I was in in a place that 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 essentially is a white man's land. Um, but 
I didn't get to ex necessarily experience white people or what would be considered whiteness to a great mm. extent. Okay. Um, so, so for me, it, it, it was quite a different experience. But, but in terms of, of oppression or the, the different levels of oppression, I, when I left Nigeria, I was happy to leave, first of all. And so I was, I was just grateful to be here and I was, I had no problems at all with adjusting here and assimilating, if you will. Um, so maybe some things that most people would have considered to be oppressive, I did not, not, not necessarily see it that way. Um, and I, I, Obviously, with my with my education, like I said before, I wasn't necessarily concerned with learning about American politics or Canadian politics. So, when it, for people who took those courses, they talked quite a bit about like racial strife in the United States and maybe um, contentious relationship between the indigenous population in Canada and the the settlers. So which I got to learn maybe bits and pieces here and there, but never never to a very large extent, which again, that's one of the sig most significant differences between Canada and the United States. So the indigenous population is kind of like the black people of Canada. Yeah. Mm. So, so um, that's, that's having a conversation about race and racism, they're the ones that are more centered, not necessarily like black Canadians. Um, so it's it's and for for them there are actual like visible issues uh, because I think the last residential school only closed in nineteen in the nineteen nineties so not very long ago um, and and they've had quite a bit of of, of uh, brutal history with with the settlers so their own experience I think it's it's quite different um, and so. For them, if they, if they are talking about oppression, I definitely understand where they're coming from um, because their, their, their life outcomes sort of mirror that. There's still a lot of generational um, generational trauma that's, that's stuck with that community so far. Um, and uh, one that, I, one that I, I, I don't necessarily see parallels with Black people in the United States um, okay. because Black people in the United States are more... There's a lot more time removal between the current generation and the generation that sort of experienced either slavery or the civil rights era. Um, sure. For example, whereas for Canada, the indigenous population, there are still people who went to um, the uh, residential schools still alive today. And so there's a lot more direct generational trauma, if you will. Can you so, briefly explain what the residential schools are? So these were schools that were supposed to assimilate um, uh, indigenous children into Canadian culture. So the, the broader English uh, Canadian culture. Uh, so students, or oh, sorry, children were ripped away from their families uh, and taking, taken to these schools and given English names and taught English. And some of them forgot their languages. Some of them, uh, it, it really was a cultural, a cultural, I guess, uh, atrocity done to yeah. the population here. Um, so they're, they're, the, the residential school system, I believe it was, it was mostly run by churches as well. I think the Catholic church. That's correct. Uh, yeah. And, and um, 
it was a it was a sort of a haven for abuse. Yes, um, for for some of these children, uh, and and that has replicated in itself into like harmful behavior like alcoholism, um, drug use, um, really severe rates of depression and suicides in in, in in those communities, as well as poor economic outcomes and mm-hmm. and, and so on. So there there. Their, their plight, the plight of the indigenous population in Canada um, is something that I wouldn't necessarily hand wave um, or, or consider to be, to be um, or take lightly. So, so in that sense, when, when we're talking about oppression, when we're talking about, when we're talking about systemic inequality, um, when it relates to this particular group, I definitely, definitely, um, I'm very well aware that that is a real thing. Um, but insofar as oppression in other spheres, I didn't necessarily feel that. Um, I, I guess when I, when I got here, there weren't a lot of Black people per se. So you had this massive influx of, of because I came with a group, uh, a group of other Nigerians, you had this massive influx of Black people Work, always walking together in groups when we go to the mall or go to the, the cinema or whatever. Um, and so it was it was a new thing for a lot of these people, especially the white people. Mm-hmm. So I guess whatever whatever experiences I may have had or other people may have had, I'm I'm less likely to chalk that to chalk that up to racism. I'm just I'm more likely to say that's just someone in uh, encountering a group that they haven't haven't really had an experience with uh, versus acting maliciously or or looking down at at this group because of their race or because of the color of their skin uh, which i mean you would get you would get like you could see sometimes in their faces like okay <laughs> like i haven't seen these people before and all of a sudden i'm seeing these people so it, it was it was definitely a shock to some to some like i could see it in some people's faces uh, but again i'm less likely to say that that person is a bigot or prejudiced because i know that i know the state of society uh, when i got here um and i'm less likely to to assign malicious intent to to someone's expression or someone's actions towards me uh, at that particular point in time now, for the most part, like I said, I'm surrounded by people of different ethnicities, less so white, um, and so I don't, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself to be to be um, struggling with 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 um, either representation or or with with unconscious bias or microaggressions or whatever it is. I mean, that, that that's not to say that it doesn't happen with other groups of people. Like there are racist people who are uh, people of Indian descent who are racist. There are people who are, who are Chinese descent who are racist. And there are people who have legitimately experienced racism at the hands of these groups of people. Um, but as far as white people are concerned, that's not my experience whatsoever. That, that you, sounds, as I said, it sounds kind of like the opposite of what is at least communicated as the, the the current mindset of the the dedicated anti-racist in that rather than assuming good intent and maybe you know just curiosity or straight ignorance uh for you know say a white person who's just never had any black friends or whatever the assumption and the assertion is you are automatically racist 
And not only are you racist, but you don't even get to ask your questions to to remedy your ignorance just because you don't know any black people because doing so means you didn't do the work and you are complicit in the oppression. This seems that how are you going to solve this problem if people cannot communicate? And yet that seems to be the message that is continually pushed forward. Exactly. So I, I always say that I'm a stranger in a foreign land. <laughs> if I had a stranger come to my own land, Obviously, I don't want to, I'm not going to act hostile to them, but there is going to be a way that I would react to them um, just by virtue of them being a stranger. That doesn't necessarily mean that I hate them. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm prejudiced against them, but I have to adjust to their presence in my space. Uh, and so, I, like I said, I'm less likely to assign negative or malicious intent to people's expressions and actions. Now, if you, if you do that repeatedly, if that, becomes, yeah. <laughs> if, if that becomes your, your regular actions and behavior, then yeah, then we have a problem that needs to be addressed. But I wouldn't necessarily just assign racism to my first interaction with someone who doesn't. like. They, maybe someone had a bad day. Maybe something happens behind the scenes before I just walked into the scene. Right? There's a lot of things that could happen. But again, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm more charitable than some people. But that has been my experience so far. Well, in my experience, that's a very healthy outlook on just a human level. Yeah. Wow. I'm, uh, this may sound like an ignorant question, but I'm actually curious um, how racism functions in your home country. Like, mm. Although the racism that we discuss here in America, in America and in Canada in particular is, is depending on who you uh, agree with or where you fall ideologically is, is either solely white predicated on people of color, or if you don't subscribe to that, that broad notion of racism, it's people of different ethnicities, not liking each other because of immutable characteristics like skin color. Um, I'm wondering if that's, if you see that sort of thing in Nigeria, where as far as I'm aware, it's mostly as we would consider here in America, black, though I do know that the largest genetic diversity in the planet is in Africa. So there's a lot of genetic diversity, which I assume there's a lot of different types of black people in Africa. And so I assume this racism also occurs. It's just not something that we really talk about much here. It's much more, oh, you're black, I'm white, I'm racist against you or vice versa versus you're black and you're slightly different black because you live somewhere differently. Mm -hmm. And so we don't like each other. I'm curious if you can kind of break that down, if that question makes sense. So I don't, we don't deal with at least on a large scale, we don't deal with racism in Nigeria because we don't deal with race in Nigeria. What we, what we deal with in Nigeria is more like ethnic differences, mm -hmm. uh, not, not so much racism. So you have, in Nigeria, we have over 200 different ethnic groups. Yeah. Um, but, but geographically speaking um, or geopolitically speaking, we have the, the South, the North, the East, and the West. Uh, and the South is where I'm from, um, is made up of different ethnic groups. The East are mostly the Igbos. Um, the West are the Yorubas, and then the North are the mostly the Hausas or the Fulanis, and again, a bunch of other ethnic groups. So that's kind of the way we would sort of relate to each other um, most times. Uh, so 
the way it works during colonization, um, it's the the northern part of Nigeria, so the Hausa and Fulanese, had this very established um, rulership system or system of rule. Uh, they were they are Arab, sorry, no, they are Muslims, uh, and they had the the sort of emirship, so the the whole system of uh, Muslim. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Muslim religious leadership. So they had a much more structured okay. system. Okay. Um, so when when the British came, they found that these people already had an established system of rule, and so they didn't necessarily have to put they didn't have to put too much effort into um, uh, creating new governance in institutions there. So they were they were sort of prioritized uh, when it came to uh, to giving like leadership positions in the colonial administration uh, and awarded more economic and educational opportunities. Now in the south, uh, they met much more of a resistance. So people in the south had more of a um, decentralized govern governance system. So you had like families. They had more like kind of like a direct democracy. Um, um, type of feel with the with the way that they ruled themselves. You had heads of families that got together in the villages and then made decisions that way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of how it worked. They didn't have any hierarchical, uh, like structured um, system of governance. So the British had to then institute um, new governance structures in those places and then elevated some people over the others. So you had some groups that became rulers and some other groups that became the ruled. Um, and then for the for the West, these were somewhat similar to the North. They, they had some semblance of, of a governance structure and they had... Um, they, they were more educated in many ways as well. So they all they were also given opportunities. So for the most part, during the colonial, colonial era and again subsequently after colonization, the people from the from the west and from the north essentially ruled Nigeria, whereas people from the south south, which you have more of the the like oil resources, uh, and people from the east, the Igbos, these people. We were the rule, essentially, uh, and most of our resources were sort of siphoned from us to give to the other other um, uh, groups. So you had this more educated group of people who, after colonization, assumed leadership positions. So they became heads of the heads of government. They became the the ministers, the 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 uh, heads of, of the military, and so on and so forth. So they then a stratified system sort of it sort of came about, uh, and the Igbos especially bore the brunt of 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 the oppression. Uh, and that kind of sparked the Nigerian civil war because the Igbos wanted to secede from Nigeria. So the eastern part of Nigeria wanted to secede um, because they felt like they had nothing to gain, especially after colonization. Um, sure. And the Nigeria refused to let the, the eastern part secede, but the Nigeria was controlled mostly by the north. Um, and so this sparked the civil war, which which resulted in the genocide of Igbos, like over a million Igbos lost their lives mm -hmm. uh, in that yeah. civil war, displaced a lot of people, um, and and really decimated a lot of places that haven't recovered um, up until today. 
So in Nigeria, yes, we do have a stratified system. Uh, so if you are if you are from the Hausa tribe or from the Yoruba tribe, you you are you have more access to more resources. Uh, they have much more um, better educated. They are, especially within Nigeria, they have access to economic resources. They are they. They essentially the the I guess the white people, <laughs> the white people okay. of Nigeria, uh, whereas the people from the south side where I'm from and the east, the Igbos are more um, are more marginalized, uh, and uh, we have the worst environments, especially in the south south because we have the oil fields. Um, oil exploration has destroyed our environment, destroyed farmlands, destroyed water sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot, our, our environment is pretty much, pretty much decimated at this point, uh, and we don't really get enough of the kickbacks. And because Nigeria creates yeah. some like a like a really centralized federal system, where like the states sort of don't have control over their resources per se, uh, and it's all up, up all up to the federal government. It means that most of our resources are then controlled by people who are not us. Sure. Um, and, and so that has created uh, a very lower class of, of people within the south, 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 and the southeast. Uh, so that's kind of how it it we're kind of we're structured today. Um, and and so you have that prejudice or bias that cut across different ethnic groups. Um, sure. Though we we all look alike. <laughs> well, except if, unless you're Fulani um, up in the north, but we all look alike. We all. We all um, have similar skin tones. Mm-hmm. Um, we we maybe we we have differences in religion because the, the north is mostly Muslim and then the south is mostly Christian, which is a source of problem in another. Of course, itself. yeah, um, always a problem. Yeah, yeah, because somehow because the the north ruled Nigeria for a long time, Nigeria in some instances is considered a Muslim country when we're not. Uh, and that that is all, always a source of contention. Um, so there's been there's been a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, marginalization that's gone so far, and 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 ultimately there is the class mar- marginalization, right? There are the rich people and then there are the poor people, uh, and and in Nigeria the rich is a minority uh, and the poor is the majority, but. You, you can't necessarily do anything. You can't necessarily go anywhere if you don't have connections, you don't have access to economic resources, which only a few people have. So and if you're not educated, too. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of how, how our society looks like um, nowadays. Is, uh, is it generational? Like, if you're born into, you know, the family that you're born into, are you, do you have room for advancement if you were someone who has, say, shows promise? Or is it more like uh, the old school Maoist system where if you were born into a family that the father was a problem, then you were a problem because you inherited your father's sins? Uh, no, there, there's quite a bit of economic mobility and social okay. mobility as well. Uh, and it, it's happened for most people, uh, even within the more marginalized um, groups. So, for example, sure. the Igbos, which Thomas Sowell talks a lot about them in his book, uh, his books and speeches and all of that, uh, because they, they, they've been a group that has overcome quite a bit. Uh, they are they, they're the most industrious people in the country. Um, they are they're very brilliant. They're very uh, entrepreneurial. 
Uh, mm. So whatever they set their hands to do, they typically do. They're kind of like the Jews. I was just going to say, they're like, <laughs> it sounds like you're describing the Jewish diaspora, yeah. Exactly. And so if you go anywhere outside, like if, if you find a sole Nigerian in any mm. part of the world, it's most likely to be to be an evil person. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's I was literally thinking Jews in my head. I was like, they, they kind of get shunted to the side everywhere they live and they're just brilliant or whatever they ended up doing though yeah so they are they are again it's it's it's, it's one of the things economists talk about uh, cultural capital right so the the actions and behaviors that that groups uh, sort of find useful and imbibe these are the actions and behavior that ultimately leads those groups outside of um out of oppression or out of marginalization. Um, so the Igbos have that in spades. Like they have, they, they're educated, they have uh, entrepreneurial skills, they have a very strong social, social, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they, they, they're very conscious of how how the particular institutions that they that they place a lot of emphasis on. So, for example, they're very big on family, right, yeah. and, and carrying family along. So, um, in 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 Nigeria, they have this system where um, person A lives. Well, a family lives in a village. Person A saves up and goes to the city and starts a business there. Once person A is sort of established in in some ways, he comes back and takes maybe four or five of his brothers and takes them along to the city. So his brothers become become his um, apprentices. So maybe they work for like five or seven years under him, learning the the skills and and, and sort of secrets of the trade. And after the set amount of time, he settles them. And then they go on and open their own businesses and get their own like apprentices as well. So that's kind of how it works with, with them. Uh, they're, they're very family oriented. They're very, yeah. um, they know how to carry their people along. Sure. Uh, we see that a lot with, uh, with Middle Eastern, uh, <laughs> Indian, um, families here in the U S it's very common to have someone come over, start a business. And then as time goes by more and more of the family and extended family come across and, um, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's kind of how they they spread, uh, they they build generational wealth mm-hmm. uh, within within their their own societies. So, for for them, even though they've they've had a really tough time in Nigeria, and there's, there's still agitations to secede. There's still sure. there are people who still want to still leave Nigeria, um, but for the most part, they don't necessarily rely on political power in the country to be able to advance themselves. They know where their skills are, they know where their strengths are, and they, they focus on that and leave the squabble over politics to people of other groups. Like, sure. So that's kind of, and that's another thing that Tom Sowell talks about. Like, if you want to progress, do not rely on politics. Like groups that, groups that tend to rely on politics and wanted to, to take the political route are groups that tend to, um, tend to be lacking and tend to stay behind. But groups that, that prioritize economics are groups that tend to, again, escape uh, the shackles of oppression, which we've seen quite a bit with, with the evils. Sure. I was gonna, the Jews as well, I think, is another good example of that. Um, and also, I think the focus on the political, it it's much more of a... Uh, 
overt power struggle or the quest for power, right? You, with politics comes power because you're able to actually affect things that affect people around you. And so it would seem to me logically that people or groups that focus on that more are more likely to tilt towards corruption. Yeah. Because power corrupts. I mean, that's just the, the nature of power. Exactly. It's like fire, right? And, 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 and going into politics means you have to deal with the government a lot. And we know the government is notoriously inefficient and ineffective. So if you are yes. looking towards politics and government to solve your problems, then you're going to be waiting for a very long time. Uh, because <laughs> even, even if you have the best of intentions and you get into that system, it's going to suck you in. And, yeah. and, and and that's what we've seen we've seen with with a lot of politicians and groups that rely on politics like it's all about the rhetoric it's all about the flowery flowery speeches and and getting people to vote for you and once that happens again nothing whatever happens. you want <laughs> yeah i think um i think it was richard nixon he had a saying like in the 80s or whatever and he's like you know the the worst words you could ever hear from your government is let us we can help you <laughs> right <laughs> something to that effect where he's like this is like the worst things you could ever hear is that the government's going to try and help <laughs> yeah i'm from the government and i'm here to help you i think that was reagan yeah yeah right exactly yeah sorry reagan not nixon yeah he's like i'm from the government i'm here to help <laughs> <laughs> i think too much we we see this a lot and i'm not sure if it's the same with canada but in the u.s there's um much more of a renewal or a focus on getting government help and not even just this last year because of the pandemic this has been a thing that's been growing since really since the 90s i think um but I think they've even come out with some polls that have shown that there's a pretty stark divide if you look uh, generationally between um, people and how much they want to rely on the government. We're like baby boomers and people born in the 50s and 60s are like split 50-50 and millennials and Gen Z are so like our all of our uh, um, generations are like heavily tilted towards being totally okay to uh, to rely on the government for stuff and as that actually horrifies me personally. I'm, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't really like the government at all and don't want intervention in, in any way, shape or form. But, um, but yeah, it's a very interesting, um, very interesting. Uh, I'm curious, because I want to get to this before we run out of time. You recently released a peer reviewed paper that um, then caused a little bit of a stir on Twitter and uh, Canadian news, because you disagree, you, uh, the paper, well, I'll let you exp explain what it was you did that was wrong and why, uh, why it was that Twitter uh, got angry with you and why Canada got mad at you. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I, I attacked, the, uh, it's who shall not be named. <laughs> um, so, I, well, actually, not an attack. That's that's actually put it. I, I just criticize. Uh, I wrote a paper on why I do not support Black Lives Matter uh, mm -hmm. movement, and uh, I thought it was a well-reasoned piece. And it was. It was a perspective that isn't necessarily embraced or visible in the mainstream especially here in canada uh and uh yeah it's a lot of people did not <laughs> take, take too kindly to that because i think black lives matter is sort of like a venerated inst institution here that um you just can't say anything otherwise you're harming 
the black community, whatever that means. I think uh, part of the problem, and, and I thought it was a wonderful essay, but part of the problem is you were actually uh, bringing logic and reason to the <laughs> argument. And, and this is not the currency of this current movement. Yeah, like statistics? You got actual statistics? No, that's not what we're talking yeah. about. That's what, that's what a lot of people have said so far. But well, I, you... I, I like to be charitable to people. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know why, why statistics is going to, like, get, why is that fearful? Like, why is that a thing that people don't like? I'm not... I... Yeah, we've we've actually talked a bit, a little bit about these sorts of things, and Dan and I are both baffled by the. Um, like, I, I get the argument. I actually know the argument behind this, but it, it doesn't mean it makes logical sense. Mm. I guess is the thing, and so like the whole the whole premise is that, um, and I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but for anyone who's not who's listening, I can broadly reiterate it. It's that the um, the cultural hegemony. So the people who control what's disseminated to the people, so like kind of what you learn and what you take to be true, um, has every incentive to always keep that power. Mm-hmm. And so things like statistics um, or log- logic itself, reason, objectivity, individuality, individualism, meritocracy, fairness, being on time, whatever, all the things that apparently are all white supremacists because whites control the hedge that's the cultural hegemony is white supremacists and so it's incumbent upon people whites in power people in power to reiterate those things and make sure that they're valid so statistics are inherently not valid because they're validated by the people in power yeah i've had some people who who have told me that they shared the article with, with some of their friends and and the, those friends questioned the statistics and said, why why am I, like, why, why should they trust the white man's data? I'm like, what is the white man's data? Like, how, how exactly are we, how exactly do we, do we come to that conclusion that this set of data is what the white man produced? Um, yeah. How is data, how is data white? <laughs> if, if, if anything, data is supposed to be this value neutral uh, sort of phenomenon. Like, why? How is it? Now, I know how you collect data, the type of data that you collect can be subject to bias, but it, it's to me that's a very, very, very frustrating argument. That people, it's not even an argument, <laughs> sort of frustrating rhetoric that people sort of, some people tend to, to sure. when talking about statistics. So um, I actually, I want to continue with that for a second. Uh, there's, you had mentioned in your paper, I, I believe the number was, uh, and I think it was 2019, 11 unarmed black men were killed by police in, I believe, the U.S. I think that was the number, the, the statistic. And so I'm going to run with the logic that criticizes you and try and make this argument. Um, so let's say that that data is bad. Like it's not 11, that's white man data, and it's presumably more. The actual narrative that you hear quite often is that unarmed men are being killed daily, mm-hmm. which would which it would imply at least 365 unarmed black men killed by cops, which is like three or four orders of magnitude more, which is a lot of falsified data. Like that's a lot of wrong data. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's unlikely that 
anyone could ever, regardless of white supremacy, get away with falsifying that much erroneous data. Exactly. Like yes. it's, it's so much larger that it's, it's, I, I actually would, I would be shocked to see, I don't even know how that would be possible. And that isn't to say that obviously the number of people who are unarmed and killed is uh, not bad because it's horrible, of course, but it's, it's not like the number is actually like 15 and they said it was 11 and they're like covering up a few. It's like the numbers are so drastically different from what you actually hear. It doesn't even make sense. Exactly. So uh, it's, so people are inundated with, with this, I guess, visual narrative that, um, Black men are are sort of, when, especially when they hear the, the 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 statement, black men are disproportionately killed compared yeah. to their white counterparts. I think for some people, that word disproportionate sort of magnifies the scale um, at which they think this happens. Now, disproportionate, obviously, it could be two to one or three to one. That's still not a, a huge number, but. This, the 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 sentiment that comes with that 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 language or that word disproportionate is something that a lot of people just automatically in their brain think it's way more than it's supposed to be. I think there was research um, conducted lately that uh, looked at the perception uh, of different groups of people um, on police brutality or the number of number of black men killed by police and there are people who are quoting like 100 like 1000 <laughs> uh, like ex extraordinary numbers and i'm yeah. like how exactly did you, did you get to that point i mean it's not like we're seeing we're seeing videos every day i mean you see one video that's showed, shown for like two or three months but and then you see another one yeah and then you see another one and so it i guess it, it's it, it becomes very present in their minds and in their memories uh and then when they connect that that statement black men are disproportionately killed it sort of magnifies everything uh in their minds so, so that's why I, I actually wrote that piece because it started it started as a is as a sort of informal note to make sense of what was going on uh during the summer for, for me uh, I I saw that the George Floyd. Uh, uh, well, I haven't I haven't watched the video and I will never watch it. But I've seen the I've seen the stills. Um, when I, I saw it before, it became a big deal. And I was as with most things, I'm like, okay, I don't know what happened. Like I'm just going to wait until I get more information. And so when the video then hit and like began to be shared by a lot of people and the whole outrage started, uh, I saw people, people who were close to me post on social media, really these very emotional um, sort of statements that I think were genuine. Like they actually felt that anguish in them that black men were targeted. And some of them are black men as well. And, and there was a sense that their lives are worthless or like their, the color of their skin makes them, makes them a target for society. And so to me, that didn't necessarily ring very true. Like I know that police brutality is an issue. I know that there are black people that are killed by white people. But to the extent where an average black man is going to feel unsafe or feel that his life is worthless, I I I, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily buying that. So I, I wanted to be able to uh, sort of present my arguments to them and literally tell them this is not true. And so I wanted to to go to the go to the data 
come through research and, and, and sort of get my points together. So that's this how it started. Like it literally just started with a word document with me copying and pasting research uh, and then yeah. going through that research. So I spent like two weeks, like morning till night, reading through research upon research, going through FBI databases, uh, FBI reports, the, 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 uh, National Crime Victimization Service and everything, trying to get an understanding as to how, like, what is the reality, or at least what is close to reality. Um, and after that, I got done and, and I had something on paper, and um, I shared this with a couple people. And I was like, okay, so this seems to be fine, but I want more people to see this. And then I refined it a little bit. And then I posted it on my private blog and then shared it with some people. And I was like, at the end, I'm like, no, more people still need to see this. So I continued to refine it over, over the months. And uh, I think this was in January. I felt that I, I, I it needed more, more, I guess, broader attention. And so I found, I found Jamil Giovanni, um, uh, his, his platform, Speak For Ourselves, which is supposed to be like a, Sort of heterodox uh, platform uh, for for writers that that are talking about things that are not necessarily covered in the mainstream. And so I yeah. emailed them the piece, and uh, they got back to me anyway. Like they're, they're so interested in 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 publishing it, and uh, but not necessarily for the Speak for Ourselves platform that they wanted. The Speak for Ourselves is affiliated with the McDonald Laurier Institute, which is a public policy think tank in Canada. Uh, so they, they they said they wanted to publish it with a with a uh, think tank and they really liked it and if I wanted to also explore the opportunities with them and I was like sure that sounds good I mean the more people that get to read it the better uh, and so I I sent it over to them and we again there was a bit of peer review they got back to me with with. Um, suggestions for corrections and everything. Uh, and I, I made the corrections and I tailored it more towards Canada before I didn't have any real can Canadian content, uh, but the final version did have more Canadian content. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of how it happened. And even, even then, like this was done in January uh, and I, I kept dragging my feet with even making the changes and, and giving the final okay, because I, I, as much as I wanted people to read it, I was still very much at. I was still very much apprehensive because I'm like, this is the first time I'm going to be opening myself to that level of public scrutiny. I don't know how people are going to like perceive my thoughts. Um, this is a very controversial issue, and I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is something I should be talking about. Like, do I want to sure. ruffle feathers? Um, maybe I should just let the sleeping dogs lie. Do I? Do I? Do I really need to talk about this? Does it really have to be me? Uh, and so I suddenly for a while, for about a month, uh, before I got back to them and, and, and then gave them the okay to publish it. And so, I mean, I stand by everything that I, that I, that I said, I, I stand by everything, every word, every data, every argument that I made in a piece. Um, but unfortunately the people that I actually wanted to read it are the people who are most hostile <laughs> to, to what's in it. Um, so like, Black people, people on the left, uh, have been have been the most, I guess, critical, and not necessarily critical of the actual content, but critical of me. Uh, I've been called all sorts of names: uh, anti-black, racist, enabler of racists. Uh, I've been called a Trump supporter. <laughs> I've been called wow. a right right-wing grifter. Um, I've been paid by white people to bash 
Black Lives Matter and like I wish I was paid. Um, (laughs) If you're gonna sell out, you might as well get paid. (laughs) I mean, I'm a student. I need the money. (laughs) Yeah. Wants to pay me? Sure. Um, So yeah. So I I. I haven't had any really substantive criticism of the of the work uh, because it's going to be very difficult to to actually criticize it. Now you, you might criticize my intentions or criticize the broader implications of what I'm what I wrote, but the actual thing that I wrote about, I don't think there's going to be enough substantive criticism criticism about it because I'm I'm literally looking at the 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 key um, assertions of Black Lives Matter and the movement. Uh, I didn't necessarily touch upon the organization, which is a, a whole different ballgame altogether. Yes. Um, but the movement itself. Now, some people might say the movement is still necessary because it touches upon other things beyond police brutality. But I'm like, if you if 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 your foundation is the fact that black people are systematically targeted for death, um, then we need to address that. Uh, and I, I don't think if you if you want to be honest about your intentions, then you need to come correct. You can't necessarily gaslight people or stoke unnecessary fear where young black men think that they are they are likely to get shot or likely to die at the hands of police or at the hands of other white people or, or, or white people. When that is not the case, that is literally not the case. You are you're more likely to die by lightning than you are to die at the hands of police or even at the hands of a white person. Like a, a white person is more likely to die at the hands of a black person than a black person is more likely, to, than a black person is to die at the hands of a white person. And not a lot of people know that. And I feel like social media doesn't necessarily do, do this kind of discussion justice because, um, I mean, you're limited to only a few characters and it's all about clickbaits and, 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 and what gets the most likes and, and, and retweets and all of that. And so not a lot of people uh, get, actually get acquainted with what the data really says. And I'm actually, yeah. I'm actually glad that I, I went through uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute to publish it because they actually made, made the piece better. The actual piece that I submitted to them, I think was a lot more, I guess, sharp. It, it, it had a lot of, um, it was very, very, it, it, it was different in tone. This one is a lot more measured. <laughs> it's, a lot more measured it's a lot more calm. The other one was, was fire and brimstone. So like, <laughs> so I'm glad that, that this happened this way. And I, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with, with the messages that I've received so far um, from people of different walks of life, different races, um, different ages. It's, it's so, I, I'm still yet to like respond to, to a lot of them. I still get messages every single day. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that, that people responded well to it. Um, but again, the people who I wanted to read it, uh, the, yeah. who I wanted to, to be the, the primary consumers, aren't necessarily the ones that, that want to engage with the piece. So that's Which so is, uh, Yeah, very, uh, very unfortunate. Um, do you have any regrets? No, 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 none whatsoever. I mean, now I, I, I've lost my relative public anonymity. So now if I Google myself, all of these articles that come out and and uh, people know my name, which is kind of weird. Uh, as someone who who's an introvert, 
having to actually communicate a lot with people this past few weeks has been quite draining. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can relate. Although I'm not famous, but I'm an introvert as well, so I can only imagine. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I think I think I'm committed to 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 this effort, especially bringing a different perspective on race and identity and all of that. Um, I I think that especially within Canada, I mean, my essay is not new; like it doesn't really say anything new. Uh, there are people who have written a lot extensively about it, like the John McWatches and the Coleman Hughes, especially in the United States. But in Canada, it's a whole different situation because Black Lives Matter is kind of like a foregone conclusion. It's like, if you want to be progressive, if you want racial, racial equality, you automatically have to support Black Lives Matter. So like, it's a lot of tiptoeing around the organization. It's so not a lot of people who are very interested in sort of confront, confronting the, the movement and the organization. So here it's it's a whole different ballgame, and I think that it's time that that national conversation begins to happen. Do we really yeah. need Black Lives Matter to spearhead conversation about race and police brutality, or do we have to go back to the drawing board, make the thing a, a much more community-focused, community-oriented discussion between people and their police departments, rather than having this this movement that's that's very very toxic in, in its rhetoric being the ones that, that champion champion this discussion. Do you hear anyone in Canada question the ideological underpinnings of the move of the the organization? Not really. Not really. I mean, you have your usual suspects, and you have the folks at Colette, uh, so Jonathan Kay and Colin Wright. So they they yeah. are they're, they're in charge of um, Colette Canada. Uh, Jonathan K especially. So sometimes you have like output from him, but in a more mainstream uh, discussion, not really. This again, we don't I'm, have it here, so that's why I ask. Because it, it's yeah. there's that, a couple of people you've pretty much mentioned all the people, almost all the people who talk about the global organization and mm. outside of just the police brutality and, and then because they have some pretty serious and very flawed ideological underpinnings exactly but uh, uh, people don't know that again they don't they don't sort of um it's like the it's like a reflexive um uh, cause to to embrace so there's not a lot of research that goes into what these movement and organizations stand for whether or not the, the political climate is compatible with, with the, the ideology that they espouse. Uh, so for example, when I talk to my students about, about uh, Black Lives Matter, like I would always see confusion in their faces because that's not what they're used to, or that's not what they know to be this organization, this movement to be. Mm. Um, and, and not again, not a lot of people talk about it. Like people even embrace the whole idea of anti-racism without question, right? Because it's anti-racism. It's like being against racism when that's not necessarily what it means. Like, yeah, sorry to laugh. I, I've read, I've read how to be an anti-racist. Um, <laughs> I've read, I've read other works. I mean, that, that's sort of the big one that we know now. And I yeah. don't understand how people follow along with it. So, so like people think that they, like you see your, your typical California, uh, Portland, Seattle liberal. Yeah. Those are the type of liberals we have here. Sure. Well, so um, both Dan and I, we actually, so we live in Washington state and we're like 
20, 30 minutes north of Seattle. So we're uh, we're very familiar with the the type of people you're used to in Vancouver because Vancouver and Seattle are basically the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, no, I totally get it. it. It's very shocking to me, though, that one, that people eat up the the rhetoric. Like they don't, I don't understand the, like how people don't at least, aren't at least curious why there's like a contradiction in their head when they read like the anti-racist proposals. Um, like the fact that being racist is fine if it creates equitable outcomes. Yeah. Then it's, that it's not racism. I, like, I, I don't, I don't know how you square that logic in your head, but, um, or the. I think, I think the super, people just think they're doing the right thing. Like, yeah, like I, I think that that's it right there. It's and it's it's akin to, um, you know, Marx's useful idiots, and that people yeah. they you know they they want to do the right thing. They don't have the full information as to what they're actually signing up for, but they want to be on quote unquote the right side of history, and that tendency, um, along with the you know the the. Uh, perfect storm of the internet and our ability to communicate so rapidly now and the ability to punish someone via a social mob that has real world uh, repercussions um, has gen generated and, and imbued a new group of people with the power that they can flex to the extent that actual truth no longer matters. Don't don't bother me with your truth. I've got a story here that I can get enough people to believe, which will result in me being able to wield power to do a thing I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, so truth is is no longer the objective. It's who's got the better story. Exactly, and and, and it's it's that's why I'm not. I'm. I mean, there are people that I reserve vitriol for, like the ones who actually know what they're doing and selling this crap. But then for the for the for the majority of people who embrace this idea, I think it's just all about talking to them and, and educating them on, on what this this movement and this ideology sort of actually stands for. Uh, because once you break it down, it, uh, you can get through a lot of that. Uh, but for the the Ibram Kendis and the Robin DiAngelo's of the world, like I, I don't have time to be civil with those with those kinds of people. Um, <laughs> Because they're essentially selling poison and, and calling it medicine. Like it's 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 too. It's I don't I don't even know how to put this. Like it's 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 just sad um, that we we've given them the room to operate and 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 sort of the platform to to feed society with with these toxic ideas. Um, so it it's I mean within within Canada here. We, we're, we're very passive people. So they're not, there's not a lot of pushback. And you, I don't think I would even expect any like significant pushback from people when it comes to this, this, this ideology there. I mean, my university, for example, uh, has been talking for ages about decolonizing academia, decolonizing the university, whatever that means. I mean, when you decolonize and de deconstruct, what do you replace it with? Um, and what nobody answers that question. <laughs> I have yet to hear an answer to that question. That's an important question. Exactly. So once you, <sighs> what you replace it is that is that conducive to a sustainable, uh, um, equal, uh, integrated future? Like, is that what? Like, what is the future that we want? 
do we still want a stratified hierarchical society divided by race or do we want everyone to essentially be the same like what is our goal and how do how do all of these steps how do these ideologies help yeah. us help or do not help us towards this goal no one seems to have a clear response i mean there are people who probably have an idea the people who was who used this for revenge rather than for equality or equity as they put it um but for the, for the broader population, I think that's a question we need to ask. Like, what type of future do we want to build? And are, is this the right path that we need to, we need to walk on? Well, I think that, that if you take their argument to its logical conclusion, the clear answer is no, which is why they don't want to talk about it. If we follow this all the way down the path, which potentially not guaranteed, but potentially ends in Marxism or something very similar, uh, black communities are going to be hit worse than white communities. You're only going to make it worse for the very people that you claim that you are trying to make things better for. Yeah. It's completely contradictory in my mind. Yeah, it's it's um, it's very very concerning the way it has sort of warmed its way throughout public institutions, private institutions, universities, everywhere. Like it's, it's just spread, spread. Because really it started quietly. with education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's and... really quietly. And, and it's, it's like, there's, there's no resistance because, because resistance is futile at this point, especially here in Canada. <laughs> right. right. It's like every, you, you, you didn't know when it took over and now it's kind of too late to even start wanting to fight it uh because everyone's yeah. going to look at you know, like what is wrong with you <laughs> like are you just are you just getting here today like is, are you like johnny just come like so <laughs> it, it's it's uh it's uh it's it's taking over um and it's going to take a long time to to really dismantle if if that's a thing that we're even interested in doing or maybe we'll just create carve a counterculture of our own and live, live separately. But in terms of these institutions, it's, it's warmed its way um, through, through that. You said something interesting. You said, um, if we're even interested in getting rid of this versus if we just get rid of it, that makes me, I, it's not clear to me either that as a culture, let's say Canadian or American culture or both Western culture, whatever is actually interested in getting rid of it. Mm. I'm wondering your experiences as, you know, as someone who, you know, is from Nigeria is, is fairly new to Western culture um, versus your culture in your homeland, what your kind of an outsider ex uh, perspective is on that. Do you see this as something that everyday people that, you know, actually want to, Hmm. you know go through go forward with this ideology and decolonize w the western enlightenment system and then hmm. share the rubble with everybody or do you see it as maybe people actually want to fight and maybe continue the economic progress that really only capitalism has been able to afford the most amount of people i think it's a very complex <laughs> complex situation sure yeah. uh, especially someone someone who's an immigrant and most of my most of my friends are actually all of my friends are immigrants. <laughs> um, they they are. This is sad. So first of all, I'm as someone from Nigeria. My friends that are Nigerian, we understand how 
social stratification works and, and the sort of division that it breeds. Some of us are from communities where at specific times we've had to clear out of those communities because of inter-ethnic strife. Um, my parents, my, my, my mother, um, my mother's father died in fighting in the Nigerian civil war. Uh, my, my father's mother got displaced during the Nigerian civil war. Like, we have experiences with what division, ethnic division, so how that affects people. And so I'm not particularly enthusiastic about believing that here. Sure. Um, yes. Dividing people based on these immutable characteristics uh, or based on how they were born. So it's, it's for me, I, so on that level, I will resist it with every fiber of my being. I don't know about other people. Uh, but when I talk to my friends, especially the Nigerians, like there's, there are two, two groups of people. So there are people who obviously buy into the idea of, of like racism being this pervasive thing that happens in, in the Western world. Uh, and think that most things happen to them because they are black. Um, but I don't know if they would buy into anti-racism, especially as it, as it sort of links to the Marxist ideology, uh, because if they really understood it, they would not, because the average Nigerian is very, very economic-centered. Mm -hmm. So anything that is going to take away entrepreneurship, is going to take away independence, is something that the average Nigerian doesn't necessarily like. We don't do government handouts. Again, because yeah. we're not used to government handouts, right? Where, you, where, where people who are used to forging our own paths by ourselves. So, yeah. so on that level, so the racism rhetoric, some people buy into, but the anti-racism Marxist ideology, if they understand it, they would not really buy into that. Um, I don't know about people from other countries or other, uh, other places in the global South. Uh, and then when it comes to identity, now, this is another part that is very, quite interesting. I only know of my and my friend's perspective on this. Um, I'm actually wanting to do like a more like national survey, a national Canadian survey on this, um, especially for, for African migrants, immigrants, or maybe I will expand it to other people, but I don't know yet. So I don't see myself as black, right? Other people see me as black. That's not how I define myself. That's not how I've ever defined myself. So this is because I don't, I didn't know what being black was. I grew up in Nigeria. I was Nigerian or I was a member of my tribe. That was all it was. Maybe, maybe, maybe I was African, but there was no instance in Nigeria, growing up in Nigeria, where, where I had to identify as anything other than a member of my tribe, a member of my state and being Nigerian. Yeah. So when I came to Canada, I mean, I was still Nigerian. Maybe I would say I was African, but black, again, was something I was not really familiar with. <laughs> and so something that other people put upon me and define me as. So most times right now when, and some of my friends also um, do this as well. So when we're introducing ourselves, we're like, hey, my name is Sonia and I'm Nigerian. I, that's how I would introduce myself. I, I would never say I'm black. For the purpose of other things, maybe I would, I would put it out here and there um, just to make things simpler. 
So for example, I had a, I had a radio interview last week or two weeks ago. I can't remember. Uh, and the lady, she was interviewing me about the essay and she was like, just to confirm or just to be sure you're black. Right. And I'm like, I'm Nigerian. <laughs> and I'm sure she didn't, <laughs> I'm sure she didn't necessarily know the difference for her. Obviously being Nigerian means that you're black. Like you have a darker skin tone, meaning that you're black, but yeah. it was conscious for me or of me to say that, that I'm Nigerian rather than to affirm that I'm black because that's not an identity that I, that I choose for myself or that's not how I see myself. Um, mm. And so there's, there, there's obviously that, that contention and a lot of people will say whether you like it or not, you're black because that's, that's kind of how you exist in this, in this uh, power. Yeah, here power in the US and Canada, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's how, that's how, the system will treat you, it will treat you as though you're black. But then I choose to see myself as an individual within that system, navigating these power structures. And the way that I define myself, even within that system, is first, I'm individual, I'm an individual. And beyond that, I'm Nigerian. Beyond that, I could say I'm African. And then after that, maybe reluctantly, I'm black. But I wouldn't necessarily identify myself first by the color of my skin. That's, that's not how it's going to happen because I don't have any experience per se with that, uh, with, with, with that idea of an identity. So, so with, with, with how it applies here in Canada, I mean, there, in, in many ways, so there are people who say black Canadians, there are people who say Afro Canadians, and there are people who say Jamaican Canadian or Nigerian Canadian or whatever Canadian, um, but even even here, it's 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 quite jarring per se to to hear black Canadian or to refer to people as black, right? Because a huge section of the of the black population are immigrants. So, and as immigrants, when we are amongst ourselves, we see ourselves as, as members of our nationality. Yeah. Again, not necessarily as black people. So I'm talking to an Ethiopian, or I'm talking to a South African, or I'm talking to a Zimbabwean, I'm talking to a Congolese. That's how it is. I'm not talking to a fellow black person. <laughs> that's not how that's not how how we identify ourselves. But again, that's how outsiders or the system identifies us. And so I'm interested, I'm really interested to see how that how that sense of identity, how people navigate that sense of identity in this very hyper-racialized world that we live in in North America, if that makes a difference for them or not. Because for me, it's, a, it's, it's, it's part of my autonomy or part of my sense of independence for me to actually choose my identity rather than embrace an identity that someone else has put upon me, if, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does. Your, sense, yeah. You're basically espousing the views of Martin Luther King. I mean, he obviously he talked about other things, but that was a big part of his, his version of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. was, I, you know, I am not the color of my skin. I'm, I'm a man. I'm, I'm an individual. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think a big, you know, obviously America's, the vast majority is white. So we're going to see, minorities and notice that they're different skin tones. And then there's also the, the, the slavery issue of uh, the, the social construction issue of where race came from, right? And how white Europeans enforced blackness upon, you know, Africans and then brought them uh, across the, the ocean and, 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 and the like. But this notion that you're, 
you reject is it's interesting because that's literally the argument of intersectionality or at least of Kimberly Crenshaw when she talks about intersectionality is that you actually need to not only not dismiss race, but you need to center it and use it as an identity to gain power, political power within the power structures that we have. Mm. Um, so it, it's a very interesting um, dynamic where on one end you have many, many years of people in America, and I, I would assume similarly in Canada, but trying to not necessarily ignore race, but not give it the front and center, say, uh, uh, front and center, um, you know, place and move forward as individuals with multiple different characteristics about them, you know, whether it be you're Nigerian or a woman or black or from Canada or wh whatever it is, you have a lot of different identities that you, you can choose and that I can infer. Um, and then you have this argument that says all of that is wrong. And then we're going to put, we're going to put power into these things and then use it for political aims, which is the actual express purpose you mentioned Marxism, which is which is in part part of it. Um, it's a cultural form of it, as opposed to an economic form. And then you add postmodernism into the mix to, which, which is just basically, uh, near as I can tell, one of many uh, one of the many reasons it's used is just to simply uh, remove the re relevance and validity of counterarguments. Right? If if nothing is real, then an argument is unfalsifiable. Right? So, because all of my Every, every way that I would break down your argument is by virtue wrong because of how the argument's constructed under postmodernism. Well, lived experience is paramount. Nothing yeah. you say is more valid than my lived experience. So sit down and listen. Um, <laughs> this is a slice of a tangent, but because you brought up lived experience. And so I, I've literally just thought of this. There was, um, this kid went to a college down in like Southern, uh, uh, the Southern States in Southern America. And I think it was Weber state. I forget what state it's in, but, um, Weber state college. And he joined the, um, the debate team. I assume they have debate teams in Canada. Are you like familiar with how they work? Possibly. <laughs> Um, it basically, it's just people, they talk really, really fast to go over arguments and it's like super structured and it's actually very, very different than how like you and I would debate a topic, but, um, he joined the debate team and, um, the, the teacher that he was learning from, they were posing an argument about space and what they, and like is space real essentially. And the teacher was going to argue that space wasn't real because he had never been to space. And his lived experience dictated that space could not be real because he'd never seen it before. Um, and then he went on a, a diatribe about how um, their argument should be that whites sh should be removed into space, but that's a separate issue. It, it was the, the teacher did. It was a very odd um, incident, but that, that reminded me of that, of, the, of like some of the, the ludicrousness of sometimes of um, enforcing lived experience over things that have empirically been shown to be true. Right. Mm. Um, if I, cause I've never been to space. So as far as I know, it's not real. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> screw you, everyone who's been to space. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that it, until the experience is demonstrated to be consonant with reality, it's just, just yeah. it's your, it's, it's your personal experience. Like it's, it has no bearing on anything and any or anyone outside of you. It's yours. Sure. So well, and both can be true. I mean, in that instance, I don't think both can be, but th there can be instances where your lived experience is true for you, but it's 
reality is also true, even if they falsify each other. You know, like an example I could think of offhand would be like, let's say that I walk by you and you feel that I give you a look that makes you uncomfortable. So you infer from that, whatever it is you feel. And, um, it, they say it creeps you out. Um, maybe I just have a face that rests that way. Like I'm literally, I have no intent whatsoever. And so in reality, I'm not doing anything, but you feel it. And so both are true at the same time. Or maybe I look at the guy, I'm actually looking at the person behind you and I don't even notice that you're there. Um, you know, this is like a simple example. Um, yeah, but I think you have a resting creepy face. Hey, hey. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> when we set this podcast up, we, we broke down the duties of each of us. Your job was to do all the, the, the technical stuff, and I was supposed to look good. Hey, that now, was a good technical joke. The, the joke is on me because <laughs> we only do an audio podcast, so no one knows. But <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Sonia, I'm, I'm curious. Um, uh, are you going to get kicked out of grad school? Like, what do you think? Um, like, what what do you think is going to happen to you? Like, how badly do you think you'll get canceled? Um, or do you, do you have any risk of? I mean, this is a serious question. Do you have any risk of like being deported? Like, it's going to be very difficult to cancel me. Very. Um, First, because I wouldn't take anything lying down. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I, I'm not my mother's child for for any other reason other than my, my <laughs> resilience. Um, <laughs> secondly, um, I, I like, again, I've received a lot of support, uh, even from some members of my department. So that's good. <laughs> um, my institution, though, my university, I don't know yet. I don't even know if anyone knows that this exists. I don't know. I haven't asked anyone. I, I don't. I don't know if the if the administration is aware. Uh, I, I I have no idea. But so far, I'm I'm pretty fine with with where I'm right now. I don't think that I'm. I'm I think I'm more of an asset right now than a liability. So <laughs> that's good to hear. I, yeah. I think I think I, I, I proved my worth, but um so my department would be crazy to to get me out. Like really, they'll be really crazy. <laughs> um and uh but in terms of deporting deportation, no. I didn't commit a crime, so I I definitely can't be deported. I'm a permanent resident, so yeah. Sure. Um so yeah, yeah, that is that is a foregone conclusion. I mean, obviously there are going to be sex segments of the population that would would have issues with my points of view, but in sort of talking, bringing back things to like privilege or racial privilege, I think my skin tone or the color of my skin actually protects me quite a bit um, in, in conversations like this, because there are things sure. that I can say and get away with that, Bo, for example, if you said that, you would totally be. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for example, if you wrote my Black Lives Matter piece, you probably would be flayed way more than I was. Oh um, yeah. Because oh, yeah. a lot of people would obviously see that I'm black, um, and therefore tread more carefully or not say anything. Uh, mm -hmm. But if it were someone else, if it were white male especially, <laughs> um, I think I think you'd have gotten like the shorter end of the stick. Yeah. Well, the jokes on everyone who would try and cancel me because I don't really have social media, so like <laughs> I, I, I I don't post on Instagram. I barely use it. Um, I, mean, I, I wouldn't work in contact your employer and like yeah. 
try to get well, him to out or yeah that's that's possible it's unlikely i don't think my my employer has social media <laughs> i actually i also don't think he would care um it's possible yeah it's that'd be an interesting thing i um to see i've actually contemplated writing something similar like, cause I, 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 you know, I, I have similar, share similar sentiments to what you wrote. And I've always been kind of curious about that. And that there is a, I actually was reticent to start our podcast like six, eight months ago, whenever we started it, because I knew we'd be talking about topics like this. And like, I, I'm a nobody from a small town who doesn't have a social media presence who, you know, has a very small friend group. I don't really like people. Like, it isn't like I'm, I'm like running around, like making all these friends and everyone knows about my views. Like, I don't, I don't really so, and I was still nervous about posting something where you can't even see my face and I'm talking about things that seem reasonable to me, but like you said, I would get filleted for saying because of my immutable characteristics, mm-hmm. right? I, I think you're, you're, you're right. Like you, you might have some protection because you know, you're, you know, a Nigerian woman, I'm just a bald white guy. So I, I I'm fucked. <laughs> 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 <So> <laughs> actually, actually, one of the things I had, I had an issue with, not an issue. I was just concerned about it. Uh, because even with people who supported me and agreed with what I was saying, when they would relay what I said or try to uh, like share, 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 share my articles or talk about me, they usually would still resort to, black female academic mm-hmm. and mm. it, it bothered me because i'm like i wrote that paper as an individual i specifically sure. stated it in there that i'm an individual at worst i'm my life matches not because i'm of african descent but because yeah. i'm human right um, exactly but for some reason people just reflexively refer to my race and my gender um when, it's when our culture talk. now yeah it's it, yeah. it really it's, is yeah it's a it, symptom it, we were talking about this before you logged on it's um because I, I personally i'm much more of an individualist right i i but our, our culture and how they view things broadly is that okay um you have a certain you have certain knowledge because of your biological sex and your skin tone. And then you would have other knowledge if if your gender doesn't match your biological sex. Um, It's such a, it's such an odd way to think about things. It's referred to in the literature standpoint, epistemology. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, but yeah, that was what my, that was the perspective I was coming into my PhD with. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so, um, okay, good. I'm glad, you know, yes, yeah, I, I, uh, I, re- I, I, I spend most of my, my free time reading about this kind of stuff, not most of it, a, a good chunk of it, um, reading about this kind of stuff. So I talk about it a lot on the podcast and most people I know have no idea the words I'm using because they're big and confusing and often have like 10 definitions and they all mean different things like equity. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, the notion of that I find very odd sometimes, but because of how prevalent it is in culture, you'll, you'll see that more and more. It's, it'll lend credence to the words you say or not depending because of it. And so, uh, which is, it's a very interesting stratification system. 
Like, this is one of the, 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 the arguments that I don't understand is there's this decolonization, destruction, or uh, um, this tearing down of the current system. And a big part of that is because hierarchies are bad. Like, that's actually part of the narrative that's pushed is that hierarchies are corrupt or the hierarchies that we have are corrupt. And like, there's some fear of that because hierarchies can become corrupt because someone has to be at the top. So like, sometimes they get corrupted. But they're just like the whole notion is to just replace it with another hierarchy, which is a hierarchy of that's what standpoint epistemology is. It's literally a hierarchy. It's like, you know, things because of where you sit based on immutable characteristics. And so the more immutable ones you have, the more, you know, and the more marginalized they are, the more, you know, so the most marginalized person is automatically the person who knows the most. But it's also an individual. It's like an individual who has all of the marginalizations knows more. And it's like, that's literally, that, that's the whole point that I'm trying to make is that the individual is the locus of knowledge. Like, I, like what the, <laughs> I don't, it's, it's, it's such a, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the cognitive dissonance. I, I don't, I just don't get it. I see this and I'm like, I have such a hard time articulating it because I don't understand why it's one of those things where like, I don't know why it needs to be articulated how wrong this is because it's very obviously wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess it also depends on where you stand. If this was me, what, six, seven years ago, I would totally have said it made sense to me, right? Um, because that's how the world was constructed for me. Or that's how I understood the world to be constructed. And so it would yeah. be to me. Um, there are people who live their daily lives through the lens of oppression. Like, yeah. just through, <laughs> like, I see some Twitter bios sometimes uh, and, and I'm like, are you actually an individual? Like, I would see um, BIPOC, tra uh, tra uh, sorry, BIPOC, trans, disabled, gender queer body positive xyz <laughs> person like it's so i'm like where where in this bio is you like the actual you and yeah. not just labels and identities like it's 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 very difficult and some people find i guess relevance in those in those identities yeah. and so it, it becomes some some sort of like a crutch for them even you can't take away those identities because that's all they know and and so they cling to it with, with every fiber of their being uh and and these are people obviously that will buy into all, a lot of this rhetoric so it's it's I don't know if sometimes it has to do with with like our psychology and now like mental health even uh, the way that we crave the protection that identity gives to us. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't understand it uh, because I'm content with being just me, like Sonia. I'm I'm content with with taking and leaving, picking and choosing what appeals to me at any point in time. Uh, yeah. and, and and discarding as I go along. Like I I, I want to have that experience. I want to have that independence to define myself. But some people are cool with being defined by these labels, by these identities. Um, and I mean, I want to say I understand it, but I don't. <laughs> uh, even when I was, even when I was still a, still very much on the left, um, I didn't necessarily, like I still saw myself as someone who was oppressed because I was female and someone who was oppressed because I was black, someone who was also oppressed because I was African. Um, but were those my primary identities per se? I don't think so. I was still very much Sonia. I just had all of this tagged along. Yeah. Um, now I, I don't 
I don't even refer to those identities whatsoever. Like whatever life has dealt with, dealt to me is what life has dealt to me. Um, I don't necessarily see that as a symbol of some structural or some broader structural uh, failing uh, that, that would, that is necessarily out there to put me down. Um, so for people who that is their reality, it's going to be very difficult to pull them out of this, this, this rut that they've created for themselves. You know, uh, yeah. Brett Weinstein made a really good point on this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Brett Weinstein. He's, hey. he's getting super popular. He's awesome. But he had uh, pointed out that the people that tend to um, lobby the hardest and stick to their guns the strongest in terms of valuing their identity above all else, and particularly trying to uh, dismantle a meritocracy, are the people that would not do well in a meritocracy for personal reasons. They're just not good, you know? Yeah. So because they would, they, you know, they don't have the, the fortitude or the ability to, you know, pull the most out of themselves and the personal responsibility to make the most of what hand they have been dealt. It's so much easier to say, well, of course, I've got all these things working against me. So you can't expect me. In fact, you need to hand me things because I'm so oppressed. Oh, that's why you never find an entrepreneur clamoring for communism. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Well, you mentioned that responsibility, and I, I was gonna. I think that's the answer to your your conundrum, your uh, your question there, Sonia. Is that I think that it's the lack of responsibility and the lack of an aim towards some kind of a goal that makes people cling to these identities, and that ties into a bit to what Dan was saying about um, people who don't do well in a meritocracy. They're often aimless because they tend to be shunned by society for whatever failings or unfailings. Maybe they just didn't fail. They're just shunned because of something, but oftentimes it's, you know, lack of ability to, maybe they're unintelligent. Maybe they're not hardworking. Maybe they're, they feel they've chemical imbalance and they're highly neurotic. And uh, like, I mean, that psychologically, so they're like prone to negative emotion. So they're, they have a hard time interacting socially, like all those kinds of things. They could be shunned from society and then they feel like they don't fit in and they have no aim, nothing to aim at because they don't, there's nothing in society that they can do because they get shunned. And so they cling to things that give them meaning. And identity is one of those. And in, in particular, you probably have noticed this over the years, but um, at least in America, and I believe it's similar in Canada, religion is not as big of an issue as it was, say, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, and religion is a huge identity and source of meaning for people. Um, I'm not a particularly religious individual, but uh, I don't really like organized religion at all, in fact. But that doesn't negate the power that it has as an identity, like as a moral identity for people. You know, people get really angry if you don't like their religion because it's a moral failing on their part. If, like, you tell a Catholic that they're bad because Catholics priests do meet, you know, do bad things to little boys. Like that's a moral issue for them because they're Catholic, mm -hmm. even though it's actually the fault of the priest. It's like, I've had people get really, I've never told them that personally, but I've heard people getting angry for that because it reflects poorly on them because they morally are tied to that. And if you don't have really much religion, you're kind of stuck with those and, other things, you know? Personally for me, I think that that has been something that well, not personally, but I kind of have a, a, a bit of a, a, an opinion on it um, because, well, I, I deconstructed uh, and became an atheist um, about seven years ago. And uh, the atheist community 
that I encountered when I was leaving religion is totally different today. Mm-hmm. So the people that I followed or I listened to um, and really liked or found them to be really insightful in their analysis of religion and white people believe in religion are the same people who have been sucked into this whole idea of anti-racism, systemic racism and all of that. And I'm like, can't you just apply the same logic to this? Like, (laughs) what's the blind spot here? Like, what's the blind spots? What, 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 is, what is your blind spot? Because you can make such reasoned, intelligent arguments against religion. But once it comes to wokeness, it's like all of a sudden, like, everything just disappears. Like, they just become a totally different person. Yeah. And to me, that's, 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 that's sad because it lends credence to, to the religious argument that we all worship something. Uh, that we're all prone to worshiping something, even though I personally, I always, always, always uh, counter that argument. Um, but it seems that for most of mankind or humankind, if I want to be correct, um, the, there is this need, there's this void that's there that for some people it's filled with religion, but then when they leave religion, that void remains. And, and now wokeism or wokeness has occupied that spot for for them they find correct yeah purpose the the purpose that religion used to give them did not find in in social justice Um, and and then they then incorporate or re-embrace that that's that that blind spot that they used to have when it comes when it came to religion uh and and sort of forget the logical reasonings that they've applied or that they apply to religion uh, when 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 dealing with issues of social justice, so it's it's to me it's been really revealing. Like people who I actually did respect six seven years ago um, because of their 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 output and, and, and their intellectual um, arguments against religion mm-hmm. are now people who are making really asinine arguments for social justice, and to me it just doesn't. I mean, it makes sense, but at the same time, it's just very, it's just very revealing how the human yeah. mind works sometimes. I agree. No, very, Absolutely. very true. I think that that really is an important aspect of what it is we're seeing now. Um, apparently, there is uh, um, uh, evolutionary evidence for the religion instinct, if you will, um, and exactly what you're saying is happening as the traditional religions decline. Something needs to fill that hole, and right now, it's wokeism. Uh, I, I think that is a, a significant portion of what we're seeing. People just need to, uh, I think, grow up and find better things to do. <laughs> but, Bo, that's hard. Yeah, that, that's the whole point. <laughs> life is hard. Like, I don't, li- life, is a di- life is difficult. It's not that easy. M- most of the time, you spend your life failing at things. Like that's actually like if you actually think about all the all the progress you've made throughout your entire life. Like if I think about it, it's sometimes it's kind of sad because I spent like the age of that I can remember, the age of three to like yesterday. It's just a string of failures for like thirty years. It's like that's kind of depressing. But I'm also like a, an independent individual who has a lot of autonomy. I, you know, I've been in a long-term relationship for a long time, which I really enjoy. Like I have a a huge amount of freedom with my work. Like I'm in a very good place in my life because I failed for 30 years. Like 
it's not like failure is a bad thing. I, th I think what happens is people, they don't have an aim and then life is hard and they get fed up. And then instead of like growing up, they throw a teenage tantrum and they just become Peter Pan. Basically they just kind of sit there and, and that isn't to, I want to clarify that. Cause I, I also don't want to, um, like brush off the actual problems that people have because people have legitimate problems. Um, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of inequality in the world and a lot of legitimate problems that people have to face. And I probably don't face a large portion of it, but at the same time, I, I think that you were talking about um, the Eastern individuals in Nigeria, the Ibu and how they're the more marginalized of the groups in Nigeria. And yet they still, much like the Jews, um, are very successful and driven, and they're driven, right? That's They probably deal with more than most people are ever going to deal with in their whole lives, like individually and as a group, and yet they still manage to succeed. How? It's because they have a, they have an aim, they have a goal. And life's hard, but sometimes you just got to stick to it, you know, as best as, as best as you can, I suppose, you know, that isn't always going to work, but yeah, yeah it's, uh, and I, I think not to paint with too broad of a brush, but I think that there's a good number of people who forget that and then they don't have any meaning in their life. And then they, they glom onto these issues that we're talking about that kind of make them feel good. And then they present these arguments that the antithesis of the arguments they were making, like you said, the atheist did seven years ago. It's like, they're, they're literally living their own argument because they're just trying to be good people and have kind of lost the meaning in their lives. Um, at least that'd be, that's what I would, That'd be my uh, my read on it, but yeah, so, very troubling issues. <sighs> well, I mean, isn't that life? Life isn't yes. <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> we're here. We're 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 always going to to encounter troubling issues. It's, life is complex, and I guess some of us have a better handle on it than others. But I mean, not to say I have a better handle on life, sure. far from it, but. At least I pick my battles. <laughs> well, yeah, it, I, I think too, like one big thing I do is when life gets hard, I, I, what has helped me throughout my life is just continuing to slog through the difficult times. Like I actually believe that when times get difficult, I'm going to make it through the other end. Like I could die, but then I'm not going to really under, uh, at the, at the other end of that, I'm not going to be like, oh, dang it. I failed. I'll be dead. So it's like, I, I can make it through and maybe I'll fail. Maybe one day I won't make it through and like, life's going to be very tough, but it, um, it always seems like that is a recipe for success. Yeah. I think for me, I, I always have the, the grounding that because I have a dual, dual reality, I guess. Um, I have my life here and my family is back home in Nigeria. Um, however, my life gets, I mean, I have problems. Obviously, everyone has problems relative to their station in life. But sure. however, my life is here. However tough my life is here, it's nothing compared to how tough my parents and my brother have it back home in Nigeria. Yeah. So um, the, 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 the risk, sometimes when I talk about like paying my rent, for example, the amount that I pay for my rent here a month is the amount that could pay for a rent for a year or two years in Nigeria. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, 
the the level of and and I know where where I'm coming from, right? I, I didn't I didn't grow up with a silver spoon. I'm a child of a small businessman, uh, and there are times where we had we had we had nothing. There are times where we where we really went through it. And when I mean went through it, we went through it. And so like there's there's really nobody here that would have a comparable experience yeah. because here you, you have you have welfare you have charity charitable organizations that can help you out but in nigeria if you're down and out you are down and out no one is there to help you um so you're so, saying there's not a lot of GoFundMe campaigns going on in Nigeria? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so so I I know what it means to grow up with relative, like being okay, relatively speaking. But I also know what it is like to grow up being poor, um, yeah. and going through life, going to school, making it out of school, doing well in school, getting a scholarship to study here. I don't take any of those things for granted. Like my entire four years of university was paid off. Like literally yeah. I had, I had a full ride tuition plus living. Um, so oh, there, <laughs> there, there are things that had, thank you. There, there, that's, that's a privilege or that that's a privilege that was accorded to me, but that was something that was accorded to me by merit. but I don't take it for granted anyway. Cause there are people who don't have that, that, that that people yeah. have access to that so coming here and having to be independent not not relying on my parents because i know that they have bigger issues to worry about back home uh, having to work for myself having to feed myself having to do everything myself even after after undergrad getting into grad school and still being in grad school up, up until date um working for my own self i don't take all of that for granted Right. And, and I know that my life here is also a privilege and my life here, no matter the struggles that I've had and I've had struggles, um, isn't compared to the average Nigerian back home where you have no electricity, no, no, no good water sources, no, no good health care. Like if you if you get sick in Nigeria, the chances that you would die is really exponentially high. Very high yeah. Um, so you have you really like it's it's. I think it was Thomas Hobbes that says, uh, like, had the quote, life is nasty, solitary, nasty, British and short, short. That is exactly how yeah. life in Nigeria is. And in most other African countries, obviously, especially the ones that are still war-torn. Um, so I don't take, when, when I'm considering arguments um, about oppression here, um, I, I have that other reality to compare. And... To me, there are a lot of trivial issues. Like someone posted the other day on Instagram how using black emojis and black GIFs or GIFs uh, is somehow problematic. I saw a news piece the other day how hiking is has a diversity problem. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how hiking like walking walking trails in the woods? Exactly. How it has a diversity problem, and there are people who are segregating school school convocations or graduations. There are people who are. I'm like, what is your problem? Like, what is your pro what do you think is your problem? <laughs> so, I liked the uh, I liked the argument that you made in your paper um, that 
about how uh, you didn't make exactly this argument, but speaking of the diversity problem, it would seem to me that sharks have a diversity problem because they bite more white people. (laughs) 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 And you talked about how that was inequitable. Exactly. (laughs) So white people take take to the ocean, to the open waters, much more so than black people. And so more white people die of shark attacks than black people. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Which makes sense. That seems that, that seems to track for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are at two hours and fifteen minutes. Um, a long conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, this has been a, a lot of fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I have uh, one last question for you, Sonia, okay. and then I'll give the floor to Dan to see if he has any more questions. I've been contemplating because I graduated uh, from university. I got my bachelor's degree in 2010. So I've been contemplating for 10 years, going back to and getting my master's or my PhD. As someone who's in a PhD program, do you think it's worth it to do so? Million <sighs> dollar question. <laughs> um, because I would never earn a million dollars just with my so, PhD. <laughs> let, let, let me pre- let me preface this with some information. I have no desire to get a degree, let's say a master's or a PhD, and then use it to get a job that will. That's, I want to get a degree. Like I like to learn. So um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to like get a PhD, say in political science and then take the bar and become a lawyer <laughs> or something to that effect. Like I, I would simply be doing this because I would like to learn. Okay. Um, uh, and if that's the case, yeah, it, it could be a fun experience for you. Um, actually one of the, one of the fantasies I had before I applied for my PhD was, oh, is this an opportunity to like take really interesting courses outside of my department and like learn a lot of things that I I didn't get to learn as an undergrad um, Mm -hmm. and just expand my knowledge. But really, uh, (laughs) I can't even read any, any book outside of political science because I feel guilty spending any time on anything that's not my studies. Um, So it's, it's, if, if, if that's your, 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 I'm getting a PhD because I want to teach in university, that's literally it. Uh, but if, you, if it's your, if it's your goal to just, or desire to just learn and you have the resources, then sure, it's, it's something to do. Um, it's something I, I used to have that, that mindset as well growing up. Like I just wanted, like my, my mom also Today it calls me professor because like when, when I was growing up and so anyone asked me what I want to be, I say I want to be a professor. And so sure. it's it's sort of been a no-brainer for me to do a PhD. Uh, but if if you just wanna if you just wanna use it to to like again get really deep into into scholarly work and all of that, then sure, you have the time, you have the resources, go for it. But if someone wants to use it to get a job, unless you wanna well, unless it's a competitive program, so let's say if you're doing sure. like biochemistry or I don't know aeronautical engineering or something like that, then yeah, you, you get your money's worth out of it. Sure. But then yeah. you get to your PhD in political science, you're pretty much going to use it to teach, which there are few and fine between jobs, and or you work in a think tank, which again you be, be competing with like millions of other PhDs. So, um, so you have to do it because you actually love it, not because you're going to get something worthwhile economically speaking out of it in the end. Yeah. yeah. And what's the, uh, what's the time commitment, commitment like? like? Um, well, I don't know how it works in the U.S., uh, but in Canada, a PhD is on average five years. Yep. So, I mean, and I assume you're putting in. I, I assume you're putting in forty, fifty hours a week of study. 
probably, probably um, when I'm not lazy. But yeah, um, yeah, and I don't, I don't have like a formal job. I mean, I'm, I'm right now. I used to, I used to teach, uh, but right now, because I don't have time for that, I'm, I just work as a teaching assistant, which is basically teaching, but like, just I'm not just the one developing the class. Yeah. Um, so that that isn't necessarily like very brutal work. Um, I, I I teach a lower level like first year class, so it's it's really easy. Um, but so it doesn't, yeah. So I have I have technically I have time uh, to to dedicate to that. So if 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 that's something interesting, yeah. And you don't have any other competing time commitments, you can definitely do it. Something I've been like I said, it's something I've been considering for a while. I've just been reticent to go two hundred thousand dollars into debt. <laughs> to have a plaque on my wall that I point to when I have friends over. Cause I, like I said, I, <laughs> I just like to learn. So it really just be like, Hey, I got that PhD on my wall. Yeah. I'm cool. I mean, hey man, I got Photoshop. We can hook you up with the plaque. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, grants and fellowships and things like that. Um, yeah. I, think I would spend to up, up, on, up I, my, my PhD programs pretty much paid for anyway, but uh, it's not, yeah, especially for a PhD, I think you could get you could get grants and fellowships and scholarships that that would be the plan. Yeah, it's uh, I I know I know it's expensive in Canada, but it's grotesquely expensive in the U.S. Hmm. Colleges are it's it's uh, I'm sure you've heard in the news, but there's been a, a large call for a while now to cancel all student debt mm-hmm. because it's so it's and there's actually like I think it's a bad idea, but there's so many people are in so much debt that it's, it's definitely a problem. I, I, I know people who've paid their bills on time for a couple of years and they still haven't, they haven't whittled down a dollar of their debt hmm. Yeah, because the interests are so high. It's yeah, it's, it's disgusting. Undergraduate degrees are expensive, but as yeah. a student, my semester tuition is $2,000. Oh, that's not bad at all. Yeah. I'm moving to Vancouver. I'm going to your college. That's 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 which the places I'm I've looked at like online colleges and they're like thirteen thousand dollars a quarter and then there's four of them a year. And it's like I don't that's yeah. It's like a it's like a salary. So that's why I say it's pretty much paid because I have I have grants and fellowships. Yeah. So it's pretty much paid for because my 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 fellowship will come through my student account. And so Got it, yeah says my my tuition and then whatever's left i get get that uh as a check but it's so it's not that expensive as yeah. political science especially like social sciences it's not that expensive to do a phd program and for sure as a phd student you will get scholarships and grants like, yeah it's, like it's it, it's an exception if you don't but you will um so yeah, I I I I I don't I don't think it's that exp- undergrad. Yes, I would definitely say that was expensive. Sure. But graduate school. Cool. So, yeah. Dan, you got anything else you want to add before we uh, jump off? Nothing in particular, other than saying uh, I am very encouraged, Sonia, that you are going into academia, because as I understand it, I'm, I did not go to college myself, but as I understand it, reporting from. Uh, 
Dr. Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, there is an epidemic of cowardice in academia right now. And I believe mm-hmm. that uh, you would help to be the antidote to that. So that that's a, a ray of sunshine in the world of academia. Um, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and, uh, yeah, maybe maybe someday when uh, all this pandemic mess is behind us, we can uh, get together because we're geographically fairly close. I've, yeah. had, I've actually been to actually Seattle is the only only U.S. state city, whatever. The only time I've been to the U.S. was Seattle, which yeah. was like, just older Vancouver. <laughs> yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost exactly the same. <laughs> yep, yeah. very true. Would you uh, like to? tell the listeners any like social media info, like your Instagram handle and all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah. So I'm pretty active on Instagram. That's kind of my home base. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a Twitter account, but I don't, I don't use it that much. Um, so Instagram would be the best if you want to connect with me via social media, which is like at Sonia. So S O N I A underscore or Lou O R L U. That is pretty much you can catch me there um most perfect yeah and what's the you mentioned you had a a a blog what's the uh what's the blog private (laughs) it's private okay no that's uh, that's okay no worries Um, we can keep that private from everybody so not a problem i actually started a soft stack but i'm I'm kind of like revamping it right now okay so once that once i have that together i will i will obviously put it put it put it out on my social media anyone who wants to see that to see okay yeah, well, uh, um, when we post the podcast, I'll put your Instagram in there. And then is it all right if I put a link to your uh, your paper as well? Yeah, that's, that's cool. Okay. Uh, and li- if anyone is not on social media but still wants to contact me, uh, if you just Google my name, uh, my, yeah. my uh, institution, my university page will come up and my, my email is there. So you can just email me through there. Perfect. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Sonia, for making it on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we're at uh, almost uh, three, two and a half hours now. So uh, this has been episode 30 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. Uh, and hope you guys have a good rest of the afternoon, the evening, and your nights. Take care, everybody. Bye.